don't just accept adversity or accept pain and suffering, but lean into it. Be intentional in uh, the fine art of expanding your comfort zone. Hey friends, welcome to another Empire Show. My name is Bedros Koulian and this is an inside look into the life of another awesome entrepreneur who is also an American hero, who has also gone to two different colleges on two different continents and who has got a pretty colorful story. He's my dear friend, Brent Gleason. Brent, welcome to the show. Good to see you, brother. Thanks for yes, having me. Yes, sir. So um, let, let's kind of paint in the pictures. You are a, a former or retired Navy SEAL? Former. Former Navy right. SEAL, and uh, by the way, your friends uh, Ray and Jason have taught me the entire, um, there's an ex-Navy SEAL, there's the former Navy SEAL, and then there's the retired Navy SEAL, right. am I correct? Is there any others right. that I'm missing? Retired means you did 20 years or more. Right. So otherwise you're a former Navy right. SEAL. And if you're ex, <laughs> then they like stripped you of your trident? Is that how that goes? I don't know how that goes. I, I believe, yeah, if you're, if you're an ex-SEAL, that means something not so great happen. Got it. <laughs> Are you an ex-SEAL? Former. Okay, former. <laughs> I think. I'm Let's not spread that check rumor. Check the formal folks. records. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so not only were you a SEAL, but you, um, man, getting out of the teams, you really went into entrepreneurship and have built several companies. In fact, exited out of two, if I remember correctly, yes. or one, two. two. Exited out of two, which we're going to touch on all this stuff. And second book, Embrace the Suck, which this is a gala copy, folks, a gala copy. And you can get this from Amazon.com or your favorite bookstore if the quarantine is over by the time this comes out. But more than that, I wanted to really get you here and to talk about what embracing this suck means in your world and how it translates into our world as entrepreneurs, as leaders, as people who want to be great servants to society. So Taking Point was your first book. Yes. Really about leadership through change and businesses. Is that right. a good summary? Yeah, basically a, a, a book really about leading organizational change, transformation, leans heavily into culture and engagement and the importance of having uh, really solid leaders at every level within a team or an organization of any size. Now, interestingly, a lot of the principles in Taking Point are even more relevant now because as we know, sure. the, the complex world of modern business was crazy enough pre-COVID yeah. and now layering in these other complexities of communication and, and how leaders need to be even more empathetic and understanding of what motivates and drives each of their team members now because everybody's working in a different environment. Mm, amen to that. And by the way, as this is coming out, guys, we are in late November, about a week away from Thanksgiving. And just today, Brent, LA County announced that all restaurants in LA County are closed. Not just, you can't just eat indoors or outdoors. It was just all, you can't eat at restaurants, yep. yet they're expected to stay in business, pay their, um, pay their rent and all that. So it is a complex time for all businesses and taking point, I believe, was not only, because I've read it, was not only a great book for the small business owner that wants to scale, but also for the mega business owner that wants to evolve and change with the sure. times. Uh, but embrace the suck. Um, first of all, I love the terminology and I believe <laughs> it comes from your guys' world as SEALs, right? Uh, what does embrace the suck mean other than like, hey, just enjoy a bad experience? Well, the term originally, I believe, was born in the Marine Corps, and oh. so we borrow a lot of uh, sure. things from our, our wonderful Marines, and we've obviously uh, taken those that type of terminology. We have many sayings, obviously, in the Naval Special Warfare community, but embrace the suck is one, obviously, in the early days of SEAL training, and the instructors say things like embrace the suck. It just basically means uh, don't just accept adversity or accept pain and suffering, but lean into it. Be intentional in uh, the fine art of expanding your comfort zone so that you can accomplish more of the goals you achieve and basically make things that seemed uh, completely insurmountable uh, or impossible when it comes to your personal and professional goals or navigating the inevitable suffering we face as humans and really leaning into it, accepting it, taking stock of your current situation and then developing a plan of action and executing. And the more you do that, the more your comfort zone expands and then you move the goalposts and you do it again and sure. again and again. 
And the idea is to really widen that field, is it not? Yeah. As you say, to move the goalposts. Right. So, so now let's go back to the beginning. Uh, did you know the suck that you were about to experience as you decided to put your hand up and go, hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL? Uh, it's an interesting story, so I'll give you a quick yeah. uh, quick couple-minute backstory. I grew up in Dallas, uh, did my undergrad at Southern Methodist University uh, with degrees in finance and economics. Uh, no real intention or vision of joining the military whatsoever. Uh, my dad had served uh, as a Marine during Vietnam. Never really talked about it, never pushed my twin brother or I towards military service. Uh, and again, this was just pre-9-11, so peacetime, kind of a different mentality and mm -hmm. mindset. Yes, uh, important uh, to have that call to service, but a different meaning of what that journey would entail. Uh, so I graduated and I was working as a financial analyst out in you know corporate America. And at that time, I had a really close college buddy of mine who was a year behind me. So he was now a senior and he was one of these young men who did have a childhood vision and dream to graduate and join the Navy and at least attempt to be accepted into the NSW training pipeline to become a SEAL. Yeah. And while I thought that was highly admirable, of course, I deemed it to be a little bit of an unrealistic career pipeline, oh, <laughs> knowing you? the attrition rates okay. and, you know, it's, it's upwards of an 85, 90% yeah. failure rate. Are you a very pragmatic, logical person? Yes. Because yes. just the way so you said it. Weighing the odds, I was like, that seems a little bit ridiculous, but... For uh, him or for you? I'm curious. For him. For him. Did you tell him that? And then therefore for me. Of course yeah. I did. <laughs> to which he said, but I had read I had read a couple uh, a couple books, uh, yeah. Dick Marchenko's books about SEALs in Vietnam and Rogue Warrior and some of the other ones, and obviously fascinated by you know the history, the culture, the mindset, and the, the grit and mental yeah. fortitude of you know essentially a high performance team environment. And so while I was working out in, in finance, and he was a senior, we started training together. Uh, I played rugby in college and wanted to obviously continue. Uh, fitness regimens and whatnot, and so I felt it'd be a great way to help a friend prepare for an arduous journey, and we started spending nights and weekends together having a lot of dialogue about the implications of what he was taking on and, and the what the requirement that it would take, both physically and mentally, mm. for him to even have a chance of succeeding uh, in what is arguably the most challenging military training pipeline known to man. And I started reading more books, and we started I started leaving the office a little bit earlier, we started training even harder on the weekends, and Long story short, that growing fascination uh, and with all the reading I was doing about it and seeing his passion and his excitement uh, and really emotional connection to this journey, uh, eventually over time I decided to really for one of the first times in my life take some very serious calculated risk and you know, not be that guy later on when I'm 40 or 50 years old being like, oh, I thought about doing that or I was going to do this. And, yeah. I don't be that guy. You don't be that guy. Nobody wants to be that Nobody guy. Nobody wants to be that guy. And so I wrote my parents a letter. It's back when we actually wrote letters. And yeah, yeah. it was a very big deal. And I never talked about it. So I wrote my parents a letter and said, hey, guys, I'm quitting my job and <laughs> joining me in Navy. And I'm following and my buddy into the SEAL you're program. You're how old at this point? 23. Okay, you're 23 yeah. at this point. So you, you, yeah. had, you had at least a couple years in the financing world? One, one. One year. Yeah. Okay. So it was at about right at the nine or ten month mark of having that job that I uh, gave my notice to the firm, worked for a couple more months. Uh, I did not get my bonus for some reason. I'm not sure why. <laughs> They're like, okay, you're out of here. Never mind. Yeah. You're not getting your bonus. Peace. And so then he and I moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado to train uh, for an additional about I think it was about four or five months at high altitude uh, to really, really uh, take our fitness level as far as we possibly could before we had to enlist yeah. and, uh, and then go to boot camp and get out of shape. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So, so, so as you do that, did you both enter boot camp at the same time? We did. Uh, astonishingly, by the way they filter people back, I mean, there's hundreds of kids, you know, coming in and yeah. you're on different buses. And somehow we made it into the same division uh, in boot camp and then we made it into the same BUDS class. Uh, and we were roommates at BUDS when we checked in. And yeah, so it was, it was by the grace of God that that even happened. Right, because yeah. from what I understand, like that was unlikely that that should happen. Very unlikely. Right. Yeah. And I am curious, did he make it through? So here's the interesting part of the journey. Yeah. Uh, we all know God works in mysterious ways, and, and obviously Matt was put in my life uh, for a reason. So uh, the sad part of the story is that uh, he did not make it, and it's my fault. So I'll get to the, the crux of the issue here. So same buds class, yeah. uh, and so we run six classes a year, so every couple months. So guys for your class are filtering in any time between that two-month period coming from you know college or... ROTC, OCS, uh, other branches of the military sometimes, or just guys who are just filtering in from when they're done with boot camp. Yeah. So you have a couple months sometimes before you class up and begin training with your class. 
And so we were in the dorms doing, you're doing like half day workouts and you have a proctor, an instructor who's kind of your, he's a good guy at that time. Uh, they're running you through some of the drills and the training and the running and the swimming that you're going to be doing once you class up. And that's when things get really hard. And so the week before we started all the horrendous things you see on TV and documentaries and stuff. Mm -hmm. So hell week is about usually week four or five. Sometimes it changes a little bit, but those weeks leading up to hell week are really almost just as bad as hell week. You just get to sleep for a few hours a night. And so uh, that week before we started first phase, when we class up and launch into all that crazy training, sure. I was horribly ill, like violently ill, 104 fever, a horrible flu, uh, couldn't stay hydrated. Well, that weekend I got better and he got sick. Oh no, <laughs> so, oh no, you so, jerk. <laughs> so yeah, so he was my roommate, I got him sick and literally like that Sunday night, came down with the worst, you know, worst fever. Yeah. And the, you know, in all seriousness, if you can't stay hydrated, yeah, you're, then you're they have it. to either drop drop you or you have to make the decision to, to pull out. Yeah. Uh, because, you, I mean, you could die. And it's happened before. Um, so there is a silver lining here. He'd always, always had a passion for being a pilot. So what he did was after, I think, four or five months of doing some physical security or base security, basically like an MP. Uh, he did a lateral transfer to the Army, uh, became a warrant officer, and flew uh, MH-60 medevac helicopters, oh, wow. 12 combat tours in Afghanistan, uh, highly decorated pilot. And now he, then he did a transfer to the Air Force. Now he's a captain in the Air Force running um, some black ops uh, for smokes. drone programs. So. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So I saw a picture of you online. Not of you, you posted up a picture. It was like a flashback Thursday or a throwback mm -hmm. Thursday. Bro, it was uh, Muhammad Ali having <laughs> what looked like supper with some high-value target that you guys whacked, yeah, or captured, or did something Capture. to. Yeah, yeah. You'll never know what you How? find on a target. Yeah. When you're doing what's so called can you tell that story? I, I was going to text you about the backstory. I'm like, no, we're going to hear this on the show. Well, the story of this op actually is pretty pretty intense because, ironically, that picture came from doing uh, after you secure the target, you'll do an SSE or sensitive site exploitation, basically gathering intel. Right. So you're always going to secure the target and you're always going to gather as much intel as you can. So our task unit from Team Five on my first deployment, we were the first task unit operating in and around Baghdad, Ramadi, Fallujah. Obviously, there was other Tier One special operations. Yeah. Uh, uh, what assets. year was that? That circa what? We were there first day in April, 03. 03. Uh, so as soon as the okay. city fell, we were working in conjunction with other agency and OGA assets. Got basically it. hunting down bad guys. OGA so, stands for? Other government agency. Bingo. Got so it. basically it means nothing. Right. <laughs> it could mean a lot of things. Right. So, Any one of the three letters. There's another three letter <laughs> that it basically it. means. Yeah. And so we were doing, the op tempo uh, back then was super high and we were op operating sometimes we do two or three of those types of capture or kill missions in a night. Uh, sometimes we'd go for a week or two with doing nothing. And that's yeah. just how it ebbs and flows. But we'd be working in conjunction with the OJA uh, assets who would basically come to our camp a few times a week, uh, give us a potential target package. Uh, we would work up a, a mission profile and um, if it got approved, then we would rehearse and go out that night. And so uh, from that picture that you're talking about, he was uh, one of Saddam's right-hand men, uh, high-ranking uh, Iraqi Air Force general, uh, also directly linked to uh, attacks on American convoys, the loss of many American lives, also potentially a rapist. So uh, that was our op that night. Now the op is uh, a bit of a goat rope leading up to the ultimate success of the okay. evening. Um, so oftentimes too, when you're, you know, when you're using ground intelligence, it can be flawed, obviously, especially if you're, you know, paying for that intelligence. And Got it. Um, there's obviously a lot of different things we can't really get I imagine into, but people—they're uh, incentivized, right? Financially, so they maybe <laughs> want to come to you and go, right. "Hey, I've got information." Right. You pay them, and the information may not right. pan out. So, that as I'm we doing? know, and just like in business, sometimes sure. you're giving the wrong incentive for uh -huh. the the undesired outcome. Bingo. Uh, and so, long story short, uh, the uh, the. The target house, where basically it's like this bad guy is going to be at this location. Oftentimes, their you know their trade craft was to move from house to house or you know safe house to safe house. Sometimes it'd be like five houses down the road. It's not very sneaky, but right. um, anyways, we you know rolled into this neighborhood. Uh, oftentimes, these targets early on were like be like five minutes from our camp. You know, outside the no zone. kidding. Yeah. So sometimes we're flying three hours. Sometimes we're driving six minutes. And so you know we hit the target, explosive breach. 
wakes up everybody in the entire neighborhood, dry hole, nobody's there. And then we get over the radio, basically three minutes into the op after uh, breaching the target door, uh, we find out that it's we're at the wrong house. It's not this house, it's two houses down. Whoops. So two houses down after you've put two pounds of C4 in someone's door at three o'clock in the morning, and oftentimes because it's so hot outside, uh, people will sleep on the roofs yeah. uh, just for some extra air. Yeah, air. And so now you got shadowy figures emerging across all these houses down the road. All right, you I gotta stop you. You don't know who's quick. bad, who's good. <laughs> Bro, this sounds bananas. I mean, obviously you guys are operating off the best intel you can, and I'm sure their yep. cities are not as well structured as ours. Like, hey, you're there. I live off, well, let's say I live off Butterfield Ranch Road, and I can give you an address. I'm guessing things aren't that specific. So you hit someone else's house who doesn't yep. seem like they were the bad guy. There well, luckily, there was nobody there. Okay. So oftentimes, you'll you'll get in in these areas, you'll have three generations living on target. Right. You know, women, children, grandparents, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the bad guys. Okay. Something like, do you guys yeah. then like start swinging a hammer and fixing the place, or is there a crew that comes in? <laughs> out? Like, I'm I'm really curious well, about it. Yeah. I mean. They, what we, we, did, we try to be good stewards of non-combatants in these types of areas. So sure. when and all, it, when at all possible, I mean, they'll send people to, you know, repair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. In Some the front dude of your shows house. up with that tool belt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's Con what I'm contractor. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, okay, got it. So the guy's a few doors down. Few doors down. So we're just you know running like crazy people down the road, carrying all the big ladders that we carried because almost every house in these areas had a six foot wall in front. So got we it. had we had innovated and created these ladders uh, just literally out of two by fours, and now we have real good collapsible sure. aluminum ladders. But back then, you know, we had to two suffer. We had to embrace the suck. Like straight up so uh, Somali pirates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. you guys were using some pirate shit. Okay, yeah, yeah. got it. <laughs> and, and it was great. And so, you know, we had the ladder slapped up on the wall. Guys were, you know, leaping over the wall. The the breacher had gone ahead. He was setting the charge by the time half of us were still coming into the yard. So by this time, you have no time to wait. You know, it's not like get set and ready for the... Right. It's three, Because the jig is up. There's, yeah, there's, jig's there's, up. And you know that yeah. by that time, assuming there are bad guys in that house, well... They've heard the explosion already, so right. they're probably getting themselves in barricaded positions with, you know, the AK-47 they pulled from under their pillow. Sure. And so, three, two, one, execute, blow the door. We had what's called a failed breach. So not all, not only did we hit the wrong target. Now a few minutes later, we have a failed breach, which means the door didn't blow all the way, which means we cannot enter the target. So now, definitely everybody in the tar in the target house, if there are bad guys in there, know that Bro. the other bad guys are outside wanting to come yeah. get them. And so then we have to switch to a manual breach. Uh, luckily for me, that was great because I was a new guy and new guys carry all the heavy shit. So in addition to all of my gear, I also had a 30 pound gas powered metal cutting saw on my okay. back, strapped on kind of like a backpack. And so I'd finally gotten to use this thing. And so, you know, I run up and I get this thing started and it takes, you know, a couple minutes to cut through twisted steel, uh, big enough to get people through the door. And so as soon as we get into the target house, the, the general, our HVT, our high value target, uh, was actually in the front room. And this happened, it was, it was very strange. It was standing right there, AK-47, you know, around the, around the wall, the spray and pray maneuver where they're not really actually like tactically yeah. aiming at you. Um, fired a few rounds, uh, guys tackled him, zipped him up, zip tight him up, excuse me. Zipping someone up is a different, sure. different term. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's when your neck's really bad. <laughs> Body bag? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got it. And so uh, my fire team started peeling up. There's a big spiral staircase that goes up to the second deck. You know, other fire teams were uh, clearing other rooms on the first floor. And so we're halfway up the stairs and we start taking heavy, fully automatic AK-47 fire from, uh, I believe it's just one enemy shooter in a barricaded position just right there at the top of the second deck. So you're talking, I don't know, 12, 14 feet away yeah. from an elevated position. And what was interesting is, you know, this was our first, for any of us, our first gunfight in a close quarters combat situation. What's fascinating is you don't realize how well trained you are until you get into those situations. And they're serious, I'm not making light of it. It's, uh, but it is looking back, you realize that, you know, the layperson might think, oh, you're getting shot at from 14 feet away. People are going to be diving for cover. Yeah, nobody, I mean, that's what I would do. Nobody go for cover. Like everybody's rifles raised, return fire. Bananas. And so we're returning fire. 
my rifle jams twice in a matter of like four seconds because we've been using this graphite lube for our rifles that was recommended to us by, by our turnover assets because it was so dusty in the desert. They didn't want to use like WD-40 because it gummed up their weapons. Yeah, yeah. But now we're in the city where it's not all that dusty. And so the graphite lube doesn't work that well. So my rifle's like bang, bang, click. You immediately have to transition to your oh, pistol. Shoot. So we're, we're in this first gunfight. My rifle jams twice. And then all of a sudden our corpsman gets hit and he goes down. He's standing next to me like one or two stairs up because we're pointing up this way. And uh, he gets hit and goes down, starts sliding down the stairs. I'm like, fuck, Nelson just got hit. And so uh, our point man at the time, uh, Mark Owen, who wrote No Easy Day, you know, uh, special mission yeah, yeah. team leader, uh, he called for us, let's like collapse back down. And it's another kind of that leadership at all levels. We're not waiting for our platoon commander or the chief to tell us what to do. Everybody's making decisions on the fly based on what's best for the outcome. And so we collapse back down, drag Nelson with us, and then Nelson pops back up to his feet. <laughs> We're like, oh, I was like, gonna... thought you got shot in the face, bro. <laughs> Holy and, crap. Uh, and he didn't know what happened either. Uh, he thought maybe he tripped, but he hit the wall hard and just went face down. And so uh, we lobbed a couple grenades up over the well, balcony. Well, I'm gonna ask a dumb question here. So he was shot. Well, I'll get to that in okay. a second. Because we didn't find out what happened until the next morning. And so lobbed a couple grenades up, re-engage up the stairs, finish clearing the target. And during the search and uh, sensitive site exploitation, that's when we found a bunch of intelligence and that picture of Muhammad Ali and the general yeah. having dinner together. You Very have strange. to know when, one of my questions was, do you know what era that was that they were having dinner together? I have no idea. Huh. No idea. And it was a colored photo. Yeah. There was a some an inscription on the back, but it was in yeah. Uh, That's bananas, man. But um, yeah, you you find some interesting interesting things on target. So with everything that went wrong there, from hitting the wrong house to then hauling ass to the right house, only to have a failed breach, you're then talking, you're taking a couple minutes. You're talking probably 15, 20 minutes for all that to happen. But there's a and lot of things like, that went wrong. Oh yeah, one thing after another. Was doesn't seem like anyone was panicking, even up the staircase. Yeah, is that? You're relying back on your training. Yeah, and it's and again, that's not to be macho by any means to say that it's it's muscle memory. It's slow as smooth, smooth as fast. Good communication. You're talking to one another. We're not screaming like crazy people. You know, we're literally talking loud enough if there's you know gunfire going on, but sure. uh, not like what you might picture with a mild state of panic and chaos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the next morning, we're prepping our gear for an op. We probably have a very similar op that same night. And uh, I'm standing next to Nelson, and he pulls his helmet out of his para bag. And uh, he's like, he took a double take at it. And he, uh, he looked down, and there was a bullet, you know, a, clearly a spot where the bullet ricocheted. He got hit in the helmet, basically in half an inch above the lip of his helmet. Get out of here. Square on from an AK-47 round. Holy And smokes. it ricocheted up and blew part of his night vision, uh, left night vision goggle tube off. He didn't even notice it because there was so, so many other things going on uh, at the time until the next morning when he saw that. No kidding. Yeah. So What a close so, call. Holy smokes. Interesting evening. So we, those experiences... You then get out, and obviously you've had a lot more missions since. How many, how long were you in the SEALs? Not long, but I did, you know, long enough back when there were, you know, uh, several several trips yeah. like that. My last uh, deployment was to Africa. Uh, very different, obviously, than the urban combat environment yeah. of, of Iraq. Did you but use the right lube in Africa? Did I did. Okay. Definitely. What's the matter with you, man? Don't Going make around this, using don't the make wrong this weird. Lube. Don't make this weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, on the goats. I mean, on the rifle. But it's a, a totally different mission profile there, which is also very, uh, it's funny, I can talk about that less yeah. than I can the Iraq stuff, but uh, very interesting. And then I hadn't planned on doing it as a career, and so I always kind of, you know, felt like I would feel it out and if, if that yeah. decision uh, was to change. Um, you know, getting out when I did, I'll, I'll be fully transparent. I've got some regrets about that. And, but then I've got other buddies who were in, you know, 15 years or 20 years. And like, you're always going to regret getting sure. out. Sure, yeah. Because you're leaving the brotherhood behind. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I imagine that's a very special camaraderie you guys have. It is. It's impossible to replicate yeah. anywhere else, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, but then transition out. And uh, my transition plan was to have no downtime. Because I saw a lot of guys would get out and didn't have quite an executable plan lined up so that you know just lended way to either nothing or not so great stuff um or some of them would just you know six months later just be like screw it i'm, <laughs> I'm going back sure <laughs> all right let's talk about that for a moment so uh guys one of our friends sharon stravatsa he built a he, he, he took over a company, a CEO, uh, it was a real estate company, it was doing $300 million in sales, and it was still not breaking even, because you know, he built it in five years to $3 billion in sales and sold it. 
And uh, I happened to meet him. A, a friend invited me to fly with them on a private jet to Arizona. And Sharon was sitting across from me. He's like, man, I asked your, our friend here to, to invite you because I'm in this weird state. I sold my company. I'm financially doing well, but I've kind of lost my mm -hmm. sense of purpose. Right. And he's been on the show before. And one of the things he said is, Transition fast. Tom Bilyeu said the same mm -hmm. thing, the uh, co-founder of Quest Nutrition. Transition fast. What gave you the insight, Brent, into I'm going to transition right from uh, the teams to back to business, back to mm -hmm. some kind of purpose thing and not just co-chilling? Did you see a trail of other dudes doing that and it wasn't working out for them or what? A few, but, but I, just, I just know how I think and how I am. Uh, you know, it's got to be violent execution. Yeah. Uh, I don't like downtime. I mean, just see me at home. I can't, I rarely can just sit sure. for <laughs> watching yeah, yeah, yeah. football for more than <laughs> yeah, yeah. five minutes. I have to be, you know, doing something yeah. else at the same time. Um, so I wanted that transition to be quick. Uh, I found, um, you know, a great MBA program uh, at University of San Diego. And so I figured that would be a good way to... Uh, kind of retrain my brain uh, towards uh, towards business and be a good segue into you know a new career, a new job, what have you. Yeah. Also, at the time, no aspirations of entrepreneurship whatsoever. Um, and so I took the the GMAT uh, test for entrance into grad school uh, prior to my last deployment. So and then got accepted. So literally a week after I got out of the Navy, I started that program. So zero good downtime. for you. Zero uh, downtime. I love that. And so as you get out of uh, was it San Diego State or San Diego University? University of San Diego. University of San Diego. Do, do, do you find yourself a career or at what point did you say, I think I'm going to try entrepreneurship? It was, uh, the story's kind of cliche, I, you know, medic, you know one, one of the great things about grad school is uh, just like any school environment, you're not necessarily learning a lot of the functional skills to be, be an entrepreneur or do this or that. There's some great, you know, finance and accounting and stuff that's always going to be important running a business. But a lot of it's around networking and the people you meet both mm -hmm. in your coursework and also outside of coursework, good programs usually have really good networking opportunities or internship program opportunities. And they're really encouraging to get there and meet people, meet executives, meet other entrepreneurs. And so the business plan for my first company came from one of our finance projects. You know, you do group projects where get you know, here. five people come together and three people drink beer and two people do all the work. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those projects. You guys were the two that did the work and drink the beer. No, no, I was drinking the okay. beer. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I found a white space either way. Got it. Yeah. Got and, it. Um, <laughs> and interesting enough, you know, entrepreneurship, as you know, has a similar failure rate to SEAL training, yeah. uh, if not more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, the first business was a um, home finding search engine, which we launched right before the housing market crash. Mm, delicious. <laughs> the wonderful the timing was wonderful a little timing. Off. We're yeah, like, yeah. we're going to raise tons of money. We're going to flip this thing in five years, retire. Yeah. Just like all entrepreneurs think. Right, None right. of that happened. It, it just <laughs> feels so real when you come up with an idea. Like, I, I do remember the feeling of the first company that I started was an uh, online personal training software in 2002. And it felt so real. Like I did the math on a spreadsheet, dude, and it told me I was going to make ten million dollars a month. And so I, <laughs> of course you, were. Brent, I believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't quite work out that way. Right. Yeah. Right. So what happens with this like home search finding software? Well, we we built it out. It's basically an early version of Trulia or Zillow. Not yeah. quite. Obviously, technology has advanced a lot since then. Um, but you know, we took a the business plan that we built was so complex, so convoluted, and even considering like you know selling houses online, all this stuff, we threw the whole thing in the garbage and found a very simple reoccurring revenue model for you know monthly advertising fees for home builders or. Um, home marketing firms that were representing the home builders. Back then, people were just throwing money at, yeah. uh, at digital media for, for selling oh. homes because homes were selling. Sure. So nobody cared about the analytics. Nobody cared about the reports, the return on ad spend. They were like, whatever, we're selling the homes. So yeah. sure, we'll try this web website and this search engine. And so, I mean, we built it very quickly. Um, and, and again, the model was so simple that it was really easy to scale. Of course, we were riding the, the wave of the non-bubble uh, all the way to the top. Sure. What year was that? Well, that was, we started before that, but then obviously 08, 09 happened. Happen, right. And so, you know, within, uh, within a couple of years, we, we uh, you know, it was tripling in size revenue-wise and very profitable. Uh, didn't need a massive uh, headcount when it came to employees at that time. And so, but then, of course, obviously, we didn't just get 
nailed by the housing implosion right away. But yeah. obviously, we it was a slow erosion. It yeah. was a slow erosion, and obviously, the just like any entrepreneur's hockey stick growth will eventually plateau, and it plateaued a little faster <laughs> than we thought it was going to. Yeah. But you know, kind of like a lot of people are doing in this 2020 environment. You know, my first experience with a severe pivot on the battlefield of business was was this, and obviously, you learn a lot through you know, micro failures and obstacles and unforeseen ambushes that you mm -hmm. never knew could possibly happen, yet they always do somehow. And so we had learned so much about digital media, analytics, digital marketing, that we decided to uh, expand our offering. Originally, it was going to be sort of a, an additional revenue offering to our current client base and then expanded into, well, I guess any organization really is going to benefit from you know, the growth of digital media, which was kind of new back then, yeah. uh, at least compared to what it is now. And so we decide, because some of our clients were like, do you guys also build websites? Can you guys help with social media? Uh, do you guys know how to use Google AdWords and you know paid media spend? And so we decided to start saying yes. And so we basically we borrowed $100,000 from that company to start a, a separate entity uh, that would be basically a digital media arm of this first business. Sure. And then it just blew up and started growing, 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 while the other business started slowing, slowing, slowing. Yeah. Uh, and so... We and we'd raised a couple million bucks for the first business, so we gave those shareholders equal common stock shares in the new company, which is the right thing to do. And yeah. Some would argue a legal and fiduciary responsibility to do. Sure. Some people would argue that, but it was the right thing to do. And so, um, and yeah, and then it, and it just took off. So that that speaks to a lot of things. One, creating multiple income streams. Like, right. Had you, you talked about that a lot. Yeah. Had you had not had that opportunity to create that digital media arm, right. I mean, your personal finances might have looked a little different. Yeah, right. back in the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I'm coming back. Or worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Please yeah. let me back in. Yeah. yeah. So so that, that that is paramount. The other thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a question that the audience is thinking right now, which is, dude, you never once said that you have a background in software engineering or app development. So who are you and how do you go about creating an app and how could you do that? How dare you? Well, the core tenet, as you know, of great leadership is to surround yourself with people much, much, much smarter than you. And then you take credit for all their work. Okay. Brilliant. No, but in all seriousness, I know you talk about this a lot too, but it, uh, you know, the, the most senior leader on a team isn't always, nor should be, the highest level of subject matter expert in a given field. Right. Those are those are subject matter experts in a given field for a reason. The leader needs to have obviously a higher level uh, of situational awareness, a real connection to the vision of where to go, so that you can communicate that to the team, so that they understand how their job function drives mission success as a whole. Um, so no, I mean we'd used we'd obviously hired agencies, we'd hired one-off contractors and consultants, some from India, some from Thailand, some from North America, uh, for the first business, just because. We needed to, you know, start with a website, yeah. start, you know, get analytics set up, understand how to use paid media. So we would hire a, you know, an, we would hire agencies too. So we'd been on the client side of the agency world, and Not so we kind of understood what we liked, what we did not like, and how we could possibly do that better too. And so, you know, we would hire these mostly contractors at first, and we gradually started bringing things in house more and more when it made financial sense. That 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 absolutely helps. So guys, pay attention here. What Brent's saying is something that we've heard echoed many times before which is leadership isn't about you being knee deep in the weeds. It's really about being able to surround yourself with great people who are experts in subject right. matters and then being able to share that vision with them so clearly that they can execute on that, right? right? Just like in a, a SEAL platoon or a troop, you know, yeah. your platoon commander may not necessarily be the number one sniper or have gone to breacher school or driving school or all these different things, but they're the leader for a reason. Yeah. You know, they have their subject matter experts to be able to execute the mission plan while they're focusing on, you know, the big picture. Let's mission. talk about leadership for a moment, man. Is leadership factory installed? Is like the best leadership factory installed or can it, can it be learned? Oh, 100% can be learned. Really? Um, and, and I think all, oftentimes, too, people have innate leadership ability that they don't even realize they have sometimes. Uh, some do at first. Uh, I never thought I did. Uh, in college, for example, I was elected unknowingly elected to, to be the captain of our rugby team. And I was shocked that people saw me uh, as a leader because I did not see myself in that capacity at all. Uh, and then I was reelected again my senior year, so I did it two years in a row. And so I thought, you know, maybe there was somebody to that, but then I consider myself, as you do, to be a, a student of leadership and a student of uh, high performance, you know, mindset and high performing teams. You know, it's never, you know, it's a, it's a journey. There's never a, def a destination yeah. when it comes to being a good leader. The best yeah. leaders 
I know and that I you know respect out there uh, are in a constant state of improvement. They're never satisfied with their capability as a leader. They're always reading. They're always writing. They're always studying the art of leadership, and they're really good at doing their own personal after-action reviews. <laughs> what did I do right? What yeah. have I done wrong? And they also not just accept uh, transparent, open feedback from their team. They crave it. Like they desperately crave it, and then yeah. they apply it. Uh, into constantly improving or making fewer of the mistakes they've made over the years. What do you think is the matter with people who have a hard time taking feedback or criticism? E even if the person delivering it has the best of intentions. Right. Well, it's obviously that is showing an unwillingness to change, uh, you know, for that individual. Uh, so they either perceive themselves to be uh, already in a heightened state of whatever it awesomeness, is. Awesomeness. Yeah. Awesomeness, yeah. badassery. Um, or they're... I mean, you can go as far as saying they're insecure or they're uh, unself-aware. They lack emotional intelligence and they lack the understanding of what it takes to um, really, you know, lead a team with empathy and humility when you can, you know, lead and follow simultaneously sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good point. So as you went on to write Embrace the Suck, what vacuum did you see in the world? Like what was the impetus to go, I'm going to write this book after right. Taking Point? Why? Well, with... You know, my current company, Taking Point Leadership, you know, we're a leadership and organizational development consulting firm. Uh, and we've been really blessed during 2020. Uh, obviously, you know, our 2020 revenue projections got destroyed. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but we've been, I mean, we've been working. You with, mean your spreadsheet didn't match mine? Right, uh, yeah, and it's, I don't know what happened there. A lot of tears, mostly by me. Yeah. Um, but then quick recovery. Uh, I mean, we've been working with Google and Facebook, and we have an event with Salesforce this week, and we've had a lot of our current clients who are global medical device companies continuing to invest. We're just doing it differently. We're doing it virtual. Um, and which frankly is a lot more cost effective for yeah, everyone. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> um, so within that, obviously you can't transform a team or an organization without transforming the people in it. And so in reflecting on a lot of the things that we teach in these leadership development courses, which could involve C-level executives all the way down to frontline contributors, and sometimes a cross-functional mix of all of the above. Uh, so we've found ways to make sure that the, you know, the curriculum and learning modules uh, are relevant to, to anybody. Just like in any sort of high-performance team environment, you want leaders at every level. Mm -hmm. Your high-performance high emerging leaders, so it could be the newest person on the team, all the way up to the senior people who are sometimes even the biggest problem <laughs> on the team. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're a coach, you know, yeah. Yeah. and so in reflecting on that, I was like, wow, I've never, I've never really explored the, for lack of a better phrase, self-help genre, self-help category. I, you know, I like to read and read a lot and have been, you know, studying, did a lot of reading and studying on culture and leadership and engagement strategies to, to, to align, you know, rituals and behavior uh, with the actions associated with taking desired, you know, or achieving desired business results. But you keep looking back at what the problems are and, and why a lot of organizational transformation efforts fail is they're, you know, it's behavioral, it's people problems, not the plan or the structure or the framework or the operating model that was in place, mm -hmm. although sometimes those things have to change, as you know. And so I started looking into, I bought a bunch of self-help books. I've always kind of been like, oh, I don't need that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And the stuff I'd seen is kind of fluff and it doesn't sure. really tell you what to do and yeah. a lot of happy self-talk and things like that, which I didn't really find all that helpful for me. Um, but then I also noticed it's one of the, if not the top one or two genres in books out there. Um, which to me tells me that people are craving, craving self-development. Craving. Yeah. I really don't believe from personal experience yeah. and those that I've coached over the last 15, 18 years now, that you can read a book or go through a course or even sit at a four-day seminar and learn it. Like you have to be yeah. in the trenches right. feeling it. Right. And for, you know, for people who do what we do, you know, I enjoy speaking and doing keynote presentations, but what I really enjoy is longer-term engagements with people or organizations because that's when you can actually impact change. Yeah. Um, and so I started looking at uh, some of the, the work that's out there and a lot of it I didn't connect with. And there's some of the stuff that's a little more counterintuitive. It's a little more raw, it's a little more gritty. Uh, I really like Mark Manson's work because it's very creative. Um, and you know, now people are starting testing, like, should I use an F word in the title of my book? Should I not? And all of a sudden everybody started using F words mm -hmm. in the title of their yeah. book. So, and so I thought I could go a little edgy and use a title like this yeah. and the publisher got really excited about it. But 
<laughs> but I wanted to take a different approach in large part uh, in a couple ways. One, a little bit more gritty. And again, to your point earlier, had no idea 2020 was going to be 2020 when right. we started this project. So it did give us the opportunity to go back and do some more creative editing in second and, and third pass edits uh, to make, obviously, the content supposed to be you know, timeless and relevant for any sort of scenario. But uh, I, I was able to make some loose references to you know the pandemic and to you know small business uh, you know uh, issues and the struggles that a lot of people are having in their personal finances, their personal lives, their careers, relationships, divorce, yeah. illness, death, um, which was already sort of referenced in the book, but now it's unfortunately very yeah very relevant. Um, and obviously, this this year and beyond uh, will be historical. Uh, and there's the ripple effects we're going to feel for for a long time to come. Yeah. I hate it when people say, "Well, when this is over, this is not just going to be over." <laughs> there's there's permanent transformation that's happening here, and some of it quite good. I've seen a lot of innovation, digital transformation for businesses that normally normally takes years or fails, yeah. and companies doing it in three weeks. Weeks. It's it's weeks. fascinating, and, and quite honestly, the same thing. I think we all ought to stay six feet apart all the time. I'm not down for I'm trying to buy some gum from the store and someone's right <laughs> in my back pocket, bro. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I like that. The, right, right. But my, my, you know, it's funny you say that because there is no off switch when people say when this is all over or I can't wait for 2021 until right. this year's over. It, it's not a finishing line that we cross and some of the things that we put into action like the masks. I know a mandate can go in and say, hey, use the masks, put the masks on. I don't think there's a something. Hey, take the masks off now. It's safe. I think it's something that's going to phase out. And even yep. if they do say take the masks off, some people are still going to have their built-in internal hysteria and mm -hmm. fears, and maybe use the mask as a security blanket and keep it on for many, many years to come. And my son was asking me, like, Dad, when will some of these things change? I was like, Buddy, I don't know. But he had enough wherewithal to be like. Dad, it ain't just going to change like this. Like the way school is done for me is going to forever change, right? Yep. I'm like, yep. Well, yep. and and I think there will be, there is going to be permanent behavioral change, permanent, permanency in the and you know companies looking at their workplace needs, their workforce needs. For some, that's good. For some, that maybe won't not be so good. Uh, I feel bad for the commercial real estate professionals out mm. there, and everybody's you know Dude. canceling their lease. Yeah. Um, and uh, but at the same time too, there's going to be other. Um, you know, positive, uh, permanent changes in how we behave, how we think about our finances, how we think about our relationships, how we consider time with family. I was on the road all the time prior to uh, to COVID, and mm -hmm. even Nicole, and my wife, and I, we were, which was part of our strategic plan in 2020, was to get Brent off the road more, get the team out there more, and of course make the brand more about taking point, sure. not Brent Gleason, because you can't sell Brent Gleason. It's right. not an exit strategy that I would eventually want. Yeah. And all it took was a little global pandemic. And That's here I am home every day. And now Nicole's like, when is your next trip? Right, right. <laughs> I bought your plane tickets here. Yeah. Fly. But in all seriousness, you know, the, the time with family and the time for yeah. us, that's, that's been great, which we didn't used to have. I mean, the normal was me traveling almost every week, yeah. uh, which isn't scalable anyway. And that wasn't the, the permanent plan. But things like that that I think that uh, are going to enact positive behavioral change you know, there's always a silver lining of some kind. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that you say that the reason you wrote that was to bring change to the individuals at every look at every level, C level, all the way to frontline team members in a company. Um, my friend Clayton Mask wrote a book called Conquering the Chaos. He is the founder of Infusionsoft, mm -hmm. right? And Infusionsoft has like something like 15 or 20 million businesses that they're running the marketing automation for. Right. And being a geeky, nerdy dude, um, we're in a group together called Genius Network run by Joe Polish. Shout out to Joe Polish, the man. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's a cool cat. Um, he says, uh, he goes, man, I saw behind the scenes of all these businesses and two sim almost identical businesses in the same niche. Uh, one company's like blowing up, the other one will like have these little spurts and then come back down to whatever again. And so he starts reaching out and says, hey, look, you use my software. I get to see behind the scenes and what you're doing. What exactly are you doing that's different than these guys? And what he found was that most leaders, because when you're hired and your company's hired, they're hired, you're hired because the leader of the company's like, I read your book, Taking Point, and I saw you on stage, and I want you to come and create change in my business, right? Odds are that leader, the person up top, is into self-development, self-growth. Right. Does the things, 
to create emotional discipline, mental toughness, uh, sharpen their leadership, etc. So what Clay found in his research was that for every 300% increase, let me get this right, every 300% increase in business, that there was a 80% attrition in employees. And he's like, well, why are the CEOs still around? And the thing that he was able to connect as, as he asked them a lot of questions was, the CEOs and the people to the left and right of them immediately did the self-help, the self-development. In other right. words, grew right. to be able to handle the new level of stress, the new level of complexity, the new level of risks. The people down there didn't. Right. So when the company was a million dollar company, it's like, all right, they can handle this. Now it's a $2 million company and you begin to wonder, hey, why is Bob not performing like he used to? Because Bob did not increase his yeah, glass ceiling. The business outgrew him. Mm -hmm, the business outgrew him, exactly. Yeah. And so as you talk about this, I, I believe this was more needed than ever because when you ask a CEO, you ask me, for anyone in my company, truly in Fit Body Bootcamp, whatever, do you want to lose any of your employees? No, like I got really solid people, but as we grow, if they don't grow with me, right. Uh, they're going to have yeah. to move on. And sometimes they feel the tension and they start moving on because they realize, I just can't run as fast as this business right. is running anymore. Um, the, the problem is, though, that you know a lot of those uh, organizations or those CEOs or senior executives that, that are into self-help and they are into personal development, are into heavy into wellness, those types of activities. Yeah. Um, Sometimes there's a gap there, though, because they're not providing those opportunities gotcha. to those employees as an engagement strategy, as a retention strategy. Uh, they're just expected to do it on their own, which most people aren't. Most people won't. So, yeah. and most people won't, because those C-level executives are C-level executives for a reason. Yeah, they're high uh, they've speed. Earned they're that, they've earned that capacity to lead in complex environments where, you know, that has to be either learned or trained, or you have to go out and get a coach, yeah. or you have to engage in your own. Um, uh, personal and professional development, whereas oftentimes we just don't provide our employees that. Sure. We should expect them to grow with the business as things get more complex and don't. move to a faster pace. Yeah. Yet they won't naturally. No. Just by and themselves. I can see why. Listen, man, if when I worked at Disneyland, I, I was I was a fry, I was a bus. I'm sorry, fry. can you back up? What? I used to work at Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> can we? Yeah. Can we dive into that yeah, a little yeah, bit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fun fact: I worked at Disneyland and at Oz Gay Club. Yeah. It was a gay nightclub right. at the same time. Well, I was you a person. Could possibly trainer. be the scariest person to ever have worked at Disneyland. Could you? Yeah. Well, I was a lot cuter then. Yeah. Come here, kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got something for you. Uh, but yeah, when I worked at Disneyland, dude, I was a busboy, and then I became a fry cook, and then ultimately a sous chef, which is a, a whole different story there. I remember, as much as I hate to say this, I worked hard on my shift, but when it was over, peace out, man. I'm yeah. gone, because yeah. I'm working so that I can take the money you give me and a trade for the time that I gave you to add wheels to my truck or to go right. and hang out with my friends at, with, in Tijuana. Not necessarily like, how can I make Disneyland bigger? Whereas I imagine at the time, Michael Eisner was the CEO. He's working around the clock because the growth of the company increases revenue, his income, his profits, right. shares exponentially. And I see that now as the founder of, of companies versus, so as, as you're working with these C-level entrepreneurs, founders, executives, how often do you find yourself trying to educate them on taking care of their, I guess, mid-level, low-level, frontline team members in that capacity? We spend the majority of the time on that, to be honest with you, because, and this isn't just our experience, but research shows that uh, when you invest the majority of your time, different matrix organizations are going to react differently, but in the development of your mid-level managers, and, and in a way that that trickles down to the front lines, the business is going to grow exponentially. And you're creating more profitability through retention, through higher levels of performance. And we also teach that regard, we teach uh, motivation theory. And a lot of what's, I mean, this isn't a business book like Taking Point was. This is meant for anybody. Yeah. But interestingly enough, a lot of the tools, and what's the thing I, one thing I didn't like about uh, the other fluff out there was it doesn't, might be an interesting read, but I was like, great, now what? Now what? What do I do? Yeah. So each chapter has a mental model or a tool, basically a framework or something simple, not complex Explain to use. That. And so, well, we teach, going back to the first part of your question, we teach you know, motivation theory and one thing that, and also leading change. So these C-level executives are more in tune with the changes that need to happen, usually because they are the visionary behind that change. And they assume that everybody on the team understands because, well, I told them at the company meeting and there was the email blast that went out. Everybody knows about what we're doing. And more importantly, they know, they know the why. 
They're connected. They're emotionally connected to the vision of all these new changes going on. They're not. They're not. No, they have no idea what's going Why? on. Why? Because it takes them longer because you have to use formal and informal communication strategies and use what I call in Taking Point uh, in the book, purposeful storytelling too. Not the email, not the company-wide communication at the big event, but different types of storytelling by well-trained and intentioned change evangelists and managers you know, throughout the company that can continually tell the story and celebrate quick wins and help people understand the progress towards whatever change is happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine this year, the amount of changes, just even right. small businesses. We've seen restaurants change the way they operate every seven days. Yeah. <laughs> can you yeah. imagine the, yeah. the people? I mean, one of our clients is a restaurant group in Texas and they're just, it's pure chaos. They're making money. They're actually gonna make more money this year than they did last year. But that's through creative recapitalization of the business and making sure they're not being wasteful from a monetary standpoint, yeah. reworking your base shifts and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, you know, going back to the book is I wanted to make sure if I'm talking about how to use pain as a pathway or about how, how to avoid temptation by limiting your choices, well, let's actually give the, the reader a tool they can use. Now, again, not every tool everybody's going to use, but sure. you can you can use it in your own capacity. But one thing I liked about the first book was the people who really liked it the most read it three times, and they have post-it notes in it, and they took notes, and that's what I wanted something similar to this while still being creative and you know a good read, but also mm -hmm. you know a tool that people can refer back to. So a lot of the stuff that's in the book are from some of the modules that we train uh, leaders and emerging leaders on in organizations around strategic planning after action reviews and debriefing um, and other types of mental models that, that we share. So. so how can someone who's not an entrepreneur, someone who's not necessarily going to start a business, but is it what I call an intrapreneur? They, they are happy working mm -hmm. for someone and they're happy to create change and they want to better themselves so that they can really be well taken care of in that organization. Sure. How, what would they get out of this? This, it's, it's really a personal transformation journey. So whether you want to be a manager or a leader or an entrepreneur, or whether you're just happy being a direct contributor or a subject matter expert on the team, which many people are happy in that regard, and that's where they should stay because that's where they thrive. Um, so really, but also, it, it, you know, there's no such thing as work-life balance anymore, especially now. It's work-life integration. So when we can invest time and resources in developing ourselves, our relationships, our home life, uh, our ability to connect with our peers, direct reports or managers in the workplace as well. So developing our emotional intelligence or our self-awareness or ability to communicate, or if I'm a middle manager um, who doesn't have a lot of direct reports, understanding how to mentor and coach just yeah. like you do. Um, these aren't, for some people, these come more innately, but for a lot of people, they don't. They really things that we have to practice and learn. Like when I was a, a new entrepreneur, you realize that you go from the guy with the great idea and the business plan crumpled up in his hand to you're a leader and you're meant to inspire, you're meant to coach, you're meant to mentor, communicate the vision effectively, build a sure. great culture. Oh, no, they didn't teach that in grad school. Right. <laughs> you have to learn by a series Dude, of costly mistakes. And honestly, if you're a husband, a, a, a wife, a mom, a dad, you're in a position of leadership. You're in a position of self-development. In all aspects of your life. Yeah. Right? And we oftentimes forget that. And I think one of the greatest goods that's going to come out from your book here is the fact that more people, when they read it, are going to understand that it is okay to put yourself through adversity. It is okay to practice the things that you're not good at over and over again. And that we are supposed to be role models in every capacity. Yeah. Whether you're a leader of a big Fortune 500 company or you're just a leader of a family, to me, when people ask me, what is the big legacy that you want to leave behind? And they're waiting for me to say like, well, I've donated, you know, whatever, a billion dollars to Shriners because that's the organization we donate to. It's not that, man. I want, I want Andrew and Chloe to be this impact-driven humans on this planet that surpass any level of impact that I was able to do. And for that right. to happen, me and Di, as their father and mother, have to pour into them. Well, I can only pour into them as much as I know. Like if there's four ounces of water in this cup, I could only pour out four ounces of water. So I have to be developed. I have to be mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually developed so that I can pour into my kids. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that, that folks are gonna get. Well, and you can't, whether you're a direct contributor or not, let's say you are a direct contributor on team or your family, even if you're not a manager or leader of people per se, you, you always kind of are because there's influence. Mm -hmm. And even if you are or aspire to be, you cannot lead other people until you lead yourself first. True and, and, you know, and that, and again, that goes into the family setting. Like, you know, Nicole and I are co-leaders of our family unit. 
which again, co-leadership is not always easy. Right. And, right. and so, but, but what she's really good at is uh, calling me on my and also coaching me uh, in a way to make sure that I'm you know, practicing what I preach and because, you know, situations are different, they're dynamic and we have different feelings as parents as to how we should be more hard and when we should be soft and and mm -hmm. anywhere in between. And, and ironically, I have a tendency, interestingly enough, to, I could be a little bit more uh, consistent in, um, you know, in my, you know, parenting style and in, sure. my, uh, in, in how I discipline and stick to rules and, and, you know, communicate, you know, with Nicole and make sure that we, because alignment, you know, it's not always there no. and you're not always going to agree too. And I've had business partners in the past where we have more or less equal authority, which can be great and can be a terrible thing at the same time. And it's, you know, obviously it's complex in a, in a marital environment or parenting environment too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny to that point. My, my wife said it best. She was like, Hey, you lead the family from here. She leads the family from the heart. Right. And it's only what, 10, 11 inches apart, the brain and the, the head and the heart. But I, I really do. I'm very judicial. And sometimes my wife has to remind me that I got a 13 and a 15 year old. It's, it's okay to just listen to the long story that Chloe's going to tell you because <laughs> in the end, she could have told you that in two minutes and not 20, but how she feels about, right. you know, daddy paying attention makes, I just forget about feeling sometimes, Brent. I just forget <laughs> about it sometimes and I need, I need to be reminded. And my wife does a great job with that, with reminding me that. So uh, to, to that point, David Goggins wrote the foreword and were you in... Uh, buds with him or were you guys on a at what point did your guys path cross and how do you know david goggins uh to your point both so we met uh when i when we both checked into we were in buds class 235 yeah. run six classes a year uh so we checked into 235 he had been and many know his story he had been already at the command for probably a good six to eight months and gone through hell week twice but he kept getting uh, injuries and typically if you if you have an injury or, or you get really, really sick. If it's Wednesday or to Thursday morning during Hell Week, they'll roll you forward. So you pick up with the next class or whenever you heal when the next class yeah. timing appropriate. And so, but if you, if it's like halfway through Wednesday, you go back to the beginning gotcha. and you'll pick up with the other class from day one. And so he had done that twice already. Sheesh. And I uh, know it's terrible. And so I was like, I wanted to be one and done type of You're guy. First bro. time every time. Let's just get this <laughs> yeah. over with as fast yeah. as humanly possible. Yeah, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get my yeah. friends sick. <laughs> yeah, but I'm good. Yeah, but I will forge ahead <laughs> yeah. uh, with extreme guilt. Carry <laughs> um, and again, there's there's all types of external factors, and you never know when your body's yeah. gonna gonna give out or when yeah. you're gonna get sick. And guys enter Hell Week with either sick, injured, or both typically, and then it just doesn't get better during Hell Week. It just gets worse. Yeah, and um, so we went through Hell Week together, you know, graduated together, both were assigned to SEAL Team 5 together. Uh, we were in different troops. So even within a, you know, 90 operators or so in a team, if you're in a different troop or platoon, your schedules are so different, you're not seeing each other all that much. But obviously our correct yeah. cro paths would cross uh, over the years and whatnot, and gotcha. so I've known him for 20 years. Any uh, cool stories about him that uh, we don't know that you want to just, 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 you know, I'd only, by the time we got to Hell Week together, I'd only known him for, you know, at that point in a month and a half. Yeah. And so seeing uh, how people react uh, in a crucible uh, that nobody has ever experienced, regardless of how relentless you, relentlessly you train. I trained relentlessly for over a year and in the cold mountains of Colorado and did everything I could possibly do to sure. intentionally make myself suffer, to expand my comfort zone, to be able to uh, accept adversity. And, but then again, you don't know how you're going to emotionally or cognitively react. Uh, right. Interestingly, we've actually spent a lot of uh, time and resources trying to study uh, the, the cognitive and emotional and physical attributes of students more likely to successfully navigate that funnel. Uh, think about it from a sales perspective. You know, we want to close more deals, I, AKA get more sales. Therefore, we need better leads sure. in the top of the sales funnel. Have they figured it out? No, no. no. But um, we'll, get, we'll get there someday. But any, in, in all seriousness... Well, you can't measure a person's heart. You, you can't. And that's the exact point that, I, that I'm about to make is of... You, you might think these narratives of star athletes in college and, uh, you know, uh, high levels of academic capability. Yeah. Yes, you get a lot of that. 
Is it the most important thing? No, it's not. Uh, it, it's, it's the less measurable attributes of, of grit, you know, resilience, and passion. Uh, the, the, the size of someone's heart and how emotionally they connect to the mission of not just serving in the military, but of becoming a SEAL or a Green Beret or a Delta Force operator. You don't navigate those types of uncertain waters, just like in the world of entrepreneurship, when you're getting attacked by all sides and the razor blade covered water slide to hell never seems like it's going to end. Sure. Got to stay emotionally connected to that yep. vision because yep. uh, that's what's going to keep you uh, moving forward. And so it was interesting to see his, his, now he takes mental fortitude to a whole different level. Sure. <laughs> Most of us, maybe he's got a different part, part of yeah. the brain that we don't have, but uh, being in the same boat crew with him in Hell Week, I got to obviously kind of witness, uh, you know, you witness everybody, how everybody reacts yeah. differently in these types of situations. Probably, he and, seemed to thrive on it. He said, I thought, okay. I was like, you do, you, you're doing Hell Week three times because you want to be here. Yeah. <laughs> you enjoy just, this, don't he you? He just keeps coming yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't we I seen have you more before, please. Mr. Thank Goggins? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's bananas, but some people are really meant meant to go through uh, that level of adversity, just they really do thrive on it. Yeah. Um, I see this in the project, and afterwards at the graduation dinner, I'll be like, dude, I, I could, you didn't once look at the bell to ring, and Steve caught on to your happiness, and he was trying to break you. <laughs> it's like, no, I only got happier as, yeah. as instructor Steve caught yeah. on to me. And I believe that there's that, and every time those special souls tend to just do better at whatever they attack because it, it, this magical word, they embrace yeah. everything. They don't just tolerate it. They don't just kind of try it. They embrace it. They go, I'm going all in. And I think when you embrace everything and you embrace the suck, because everything will come with suck. Look, I wanted to be the best personal trainer on the planet. All I want to do is help more people transform because when I was a fat kid, losing weight, getting fit, I, like, like girls started to talk to me, man. And I started making eye contact with people <laughs> and shaking hands with them. Like I felt yeah. confident, right? And so, you know, being a personal trainer at a gym wasn't good enough. So then I opened up one uh, studio of my own and then a few others, et cetera, and then sold those. Before you know what, Fit Body Bootcamp comes around. And in building Fit Body Bootcamp, my whole goal was I'm going to build this fitness franchise where people are going to lose weight. They're going to transform their lives, their marriages, their, their, their income, because I, I, you've been around long enough to know this. When someone loses weight and gets fit, the ripple effect in every other category of their life is right. huge, right? I've had clients when I was a personal trainer tell me, you saved my marriage. I was like, no yeah. Like me? Like, well, yeah, like my husband was going to leave me or I, or I was able to get out of an abusive relationship because I gained the confidence, right. right? Because of that. So all this to say, so I create Fit Body Bootcamp because my only goal is I want to help people and these people will never see me. They'll never meet me. They'll meet their local Fit Body Bootcamp owner and the coach there but I'll know secretly that there's tens of thousands of people. Well, then 20, 2020 comes, come March, and I'm like, holy crap, like nobody would want to be the CEO of a fitness franchise right now. <laughs> and I'm just still like, let's go, <laughs> right? I have my days where I'm just like, what the is going on? You know, why are we wearing masks again? Why are we going down to 10%? Yeah. Um, but that's exactly it, man. Once, once you find that thing, you lock on, like, I don't know what would have to happen to take me away from opening up more Fit Body Bootcamp. You, right. You'd literally have to, like, cut my head off. Like, yep. my brain has to stop working right. for that to happen. Um, where do people find you, Brent? How can they learn more from you, get information from you, engage you and your team? Sure. Um, social media wise, I'm on Instagram, Brent underscore Gleason, uh, LinkedIn, obviously Twitter as well. Uh, just at Brent Gleason. Uh, I have a Forbes leadership column as well that I write on, uh, supposed to be weekly, but that never happens. So you a couple times a month. Um, there's been doing that since 2012. So there's hundreds of articles on leadership, culture, mental yeah. toughness, high performance. And, uh, and then of course our company website is takingpointleadership.com. It's got all of our services, uh, case studies, tons of video content, uh, the types of clients we work with. Um, so those are the, some of the places that uh, we can be found. Amen to that. And guys and gals, if you're watching this episode, or if you're listening to it on your favorite podcast platform, listen, Embrace the Suck. It's the book you gotta get and here's why. Not only is it gonna make a great Christmas gift, so I want you to buy two from Amazon, one for you, one is a Christmas gift. <laughs> it's not just for entrepreneurs. In fact, it's far from that. It's for anyone who wants to level up yep. right who wants to level up in any category of life like this is what's going to take them there and um, the, the most important question I'm going to ask you here Brent is when the audiobook comes out is it you or is it someone else reading it oh it's me oh, it's you yeah right. I did it for the it. first book too I was a little hesitant because it's you know it's a it's like 
audio reading hell week. You're there yeah, for you yeah, know, yeah. five hours a day and uh, reading it. By the time you finish reading your own book over and over, you hate it. <laughs> Bro. And so, gonna... uh, but, but again, the, the popular thing is, especially for people who are speakers or consultants, they want to hear from the author. Yeah, so. yeah. So, so to that point, when I wrote Man Up, um, everyone would ask me, like, hey, are you yeah. going to read the audio book? I'm like, yeah, sure, right? And when I read a book to myself, like in my own head, Dude, I can read it just fine. But as soon as I have to read it out loud, the foreigner steps in, <laughs> right? And it's because when I was an immigrant to this country, no. do you remember when the school teachers would be like, um, all right, you're going to read the first three sentences and then the next yeah. kid and the next yeah. kid? Well, of course, I had an accent. English was a second language. So it was all choppy and messed up. As soon as you <laughs> asked me to read out loud, I would just get all choppy and messed up like that. <laughs> so I'm sitting there in Costa Mesa at the, at the recording studio, and they got like Jamie Foxx's whatever platinum record and whitney houston like they they, they right. did a lot of like great musicians and stuff comedians and i had joan scheduled twice the appro appropriate amount of time just because i knew i was going to mess up and at the end of day one it was supposed to be two days i had her schedule 40s at the end of day one i went to a nearby starbucks um this is so embarrassing i want to tell you the truth full <laughs> transparency here on the empire show because one thing that grasped me is the way you speak. I first met you in Florida. We were both speaking at an event. And when you were speaking, I was like, holy smokes, this dude can like project. He can draw a word picture. Um, very impressed with the way you speak. And so I call my wife from Starbucks. I'm like, hey, I've made a big mistake. I don't know if I should read this. Why the <laughs> hell am I reading it in the first place? I've got enough money to hire anybody I want to read it, right? right? And so I'm just going off at her. She's just like chuckling on the phone. I'm like, like what, what's so funny? And now would be a good time to tell me like, hey, come home. I'll make you your favorite meal. Right. You can hire someone. Something, else. Right, <laughs> right, right. She goes, she goes, you know, you'll never put the book out if you don't read it. It's got to be you. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And I went back. Yeah. Um, ironically, the last two days were so much better because the dude's where there were so uh, good to me and just like, hey, take your time, read out loud. So I literally just was reading out loud and they weren't even recording it the first two days or the second day, all me. And then just reading out loud, they weren't recording it. And then day three and four, we actually recorded the book. But I say this because I was in that place where I was negotiating with my <laughs> inner bitch going, just leave. You don't belong here. Right, right. This is for people whose the language is like, the, you know, the primary language is, is English, not yours. And uh, man, I'm so glad I did, which is why I ask everyone else. Because for me, you know, if a book's not read by the author, that passion never comes across. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anyway, just have to go I just like my, I like good barbecue, low and slow. Yeah, low. My voice will be a little deeper yeah, 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 and, you know, yeah. we'll talk a little slower. Yeah, well, I'm going to bring it down one more notch. I did not reenact the machine gun sounds nor the explosion <laughs> sounds. I tried it, and it sounded horrible. Did it was really? terrible out there. Like, we can get some, some B-roll audio for that. Okay, <laughs> that's cool. That's awesome. They're going to do that. All right, guys, so go get this book from Amazon or your favorite bookstore right now. It is out right now if you're listening to this. Buy two copies. One is a Christmas gift. Brent, thank you so much for joining us on the thank show. You, brother. And as Sonner. always, be sure to take a screenshot when you're listening to this episode, share it in your stories, tag Brent, tag myself, and uh, never forget to tell your mama. We'll see you later.